Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. Okay, this is like week five on this new podcast. We've gone with historical figure at ESPN, uh, comedian, uh, basketball player, and a filmmaker. And now we're going to get just a little bit heavier. Uh, if you know this young woman uh, who works with Andrea Chalupa, their podcast is called Gaslit Nation. I've been a fan for a long time. That is to say there will be fewer jokes in this episode. So for most of my guests on this podcast, I know them in some way. There's some story as to how I met them or how I know them deeper. This guest here, I don't even remember, except that when everything was going bad in 2015, 16, and maybe I found out it was going bad long before that, as it turns out. But in my mind, when things were going downhill, I ran across this girl, Sarah Kenzier, on Twitter. Then I found out about her podcast, Gaslit Nation. And her books, The View from Flyover Country, was sort of explain how in the hell we got in this predicament in the first place. Then there was Hiding in Plain Sight, which told us what we all should have known, because as the title describes, it was all public knowledge. It wasn't like you needed an investigation. It was just right there. It was right in front of us. Now she has a new book called They Knew. So when I was doing sports centers, oftentimes we get off at like 1.30, 2 a.m., and what would I do on the way home but listen to Sarah and Andrea Chalupa's terrifying podcast, Gaslit Nation? It's like, what a cheery fucking way to go to sleep. <laughs> Sarah telling us, along with Andrea, how the world is falling apart. And so here she is. Thank you for being my guest. Yeah, I'm happy to be here and terrify a whole new audience. 
What scary stuff do you have up your sleeve? You know, (laughs) something I should say, the caveat is we could do some interview that is hopefully deemed good, but just about everything we say could be dated because things are dated hourly now. It used to be weekly from my youth or maybe monthly, right? Stuff would hang on. Mm -hmm. Now it's every five minutes. What just happened? Oh, this insane thing just happened. How do you keep up with it? I mean, I feel like we're living with a combination of chaos and inertia. Because what you're saying is true, that we have this very fast-moving news cycle where there's all these obscene developments and they happen one after another, just catastrophe after catastrophe. But they all stem from systemic issues that are very, very slow to change. You know, we're still dealing with the same court cases. Obviously, the repeal of Roe versus Wade, um, economic inequality, opportunity hoarding by elites, uh, criminal impunity. I mean, I could go on and on and on. I feel like, you know, it all stems from corruption. That's what is uh, infiltrating and corroding everything. And because that corruption is so deeply embedded, um, it feels sort of like the more things change, uh, the more they stay the same in a kind of feedback loop. Do you ever find it funny that you know, you dig into what I would argue are conspiracies, mm-hmm. but then you got the other people who are conspiracy theorists. Those guys are idiots. Their conspiracy is stupid, but our conspiracy is smart because we have the facts. Do you, do you ever spin your head about that? Oh, yeah. That's what my new book, which comes out um, in September, is kind of about. It's called They Knew. Um, and I think that the word conspiracy theorist, it's been weaponized as a pejorative term. It's been used as a way to delegitimize people who are simply investigating actual conspiracies. And conspiracies exist. You know, the mafia runs on conspiracies. Intelligence services run in conspiracies. Wars uh, rely on conspiracies. And so sometimes when a country uh, whose democracy is failing, uh, you know, that doesn't have transparency um, within the government or the judicial system, then it falls upon people, whether they're journalists or um, investigators or, or just ordinary citizens, to try to make sense of what's going on. So they form a theory. They form a theory about an actual conspiracy. And I don't know what else we're supposed to do. I mean, that's an act of civic inquiry. Um, And I think it's very different than the kind of things that you see people like Alex Jones doing, where they are weaponizing uh, conspiracy theories, where they are lying, where they are creating hateful propaganda, bigoted rhetoric, where they are using real people, people who've often been victims of horrific crimes. Uh, For example, the children in Sandy Hook saying they didn't exist, saying they are crisis actors. There's such a difference uh, between that, you know, which is weaponized propaganda, for uh, political purposes that capitalizes on the fact that we often cannot trust our government for legitimate reasons. We cannot trust our media for legitimate reasons. And we have citizens, you know, good citizens, who are just trying to figure out what's going on. And then they often do it in this environment of social media where their words can be taken out of context. You know, they'll be uh, presented in bits and pieces to represent something different than what they really said or what they intended their words to mean. Uh, It's a great field uh, for, you know, propaganda agencies and other uh, malicious actors to take advantage of that and ultimately lead to people not pursuing the truth at all. I remember, I think it was Andrea, your partner on Gaslit Nation, one night she said something like, believe the hysterical ones. Mm-hmm. I think it was her, not yes. you, um, if I have that wrong. Um, and, and it almost makes sense that you and her were not allowed or aren't allowed on what I call mainstream TV as often as I'd like to see you because I think you've got the goods. 
but it's like she's too hot to handle. Let's put her on this show, but don't be on that show. Do you feel like you run up against that? Like you're bringing just too much brash truth to the table for them to handle? I think so. I mean, paradoxically, I think they were more willing to let me on when people didn't believe me and they didn't recognize that what I was saying was true, which would be like in 2017, 2018, when I was detailing the background of Trump, his long history uh, with oligarchs, with the mafia, um, with Russia. And of course, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who thought I I was crazy for saying all of that. But I think they almost thought it wasn't dangerous because they thought no one would believe me. So this is just some interesting, you know, television spectacle. When they realized that all of that was true, when there were people from Trump's own camp, like Michael Cohen, admitting it, when it became the subject of a federal inquiry, then they were like, oh God, you know, (laughs) she actually has uncovered something uh, serious, you know, and I was not alone in that. Other people were saying the same. Um, Then I think the other big change that happened, of course, is the Democrats uh, got control of the House in 2019, and I began to criticize them for not uh, holding elite criminal actors accountable for not taking the threat of authoritarianism seriously. I think that that got some media companies angry with me. And then when I put out Hiding in Plain Sight, which just had everything you're not supposed to talk about, you know, it had the Jeffrey Epstein case, it had um, Semyon Mogilevich, the head of the Russian mafia, it had stuff about him. It was sort of a secret history of the last 40 years in America. And it was, you know, very vigorously um, researched and, and end noted. You know, I have a PhD. Um, I, I write things, I don't write in an academic style, like with lots of jargon and, and boring sentences and so forth. But, you know, I research like an academic. Uh, so I've never been sued. I've never had to issue a retraction. I've never had to take anything back. But I talked about all the things that you're not supposed to talk about if you want to climb that corporate ladder in journalism. And I have no interest in climbing that ladder at all. If they offered me one of those jobs, I would absolutely reject it because I would never be able to talk about anything that I want. And I wouldn't be able to talk about the things that I think are are most important for the public. And that's what I think journalism should do is serve the public. Well, one thing you do similar to one of my favorite programs is Frontline you'll put out, here is the raw material, here's how I, you can see my sources, I'm not writing it and hiding how I got there, you can you can check me right here. The, the facts are here for your view, your review. Oh, absolutely. I think that's really important because kind of going back to what I said before, you know, we are in this conspiratorial culture, you know, or in an environment of profound mistrust. And so for even people who dislike me, you know, and there are quite a lot of people like that for, for a lot of reasons, I want them to be able to, to know where I'm coming from. You know, where am I getting my information? How did I vet it? Why did I choose this source? What kind of um, preconceptions did I go into? when I was looking at this story, I want to make that as plain as possible so that people will be willing um, to hear me out. And, you know, often they are. Often people who disagree with me quite a lot on other issues will hear me out on on some because of that vetting process. The so-called mainstream media, I think I put a tweet saying, and I made it be a sports reference, if the mainstream political media were a football defense, the safeties would bite on all play action. I don't know if you follow football, but that means the safeties come up because they think they're going to hand the ball off. They got to stop the run, but the receivers are running deep behind them. They fell for the fake. Right. And I I see this every week. I know you you crush uh, what do you call it the uh, Chuck Todd industrial complex. <laughs> yeah. things that you guys term, but he's not alone. There's so many of those. What we've come to think is, oh, you can trust. They're going to do a real interview with both sides, but yet the characters they have on to present the both sides. We already know they were lying last week. We already know 
They're still pushing the thing that Trump won 2020, and yet they bring them on and legitimize them and normalize them. And I think that's been a big part of the problem because the people who don't dive deep into it or aren't listening to you guys or reading the books and just kind of get the surface mm-hmm. like that. I think that's a great amount of the problem because not enough people have the time and energy to really find the truth. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And um, I think you know me well enough to know that I'm not always up on sports terms. But the one quote unquote sport that I did watch um, growing up was professional wrestling. And that's what this reminds me of more than anything. You know, it's kayfabe. It's uh, fake opposition. It's fake reporting. It's people playing parts, whether in politics or in the media. And they're doing it for spectacle. They're doing it for theatrics. I don't think it means much to them because I don't think they feel they'll be affected um, by this lurch towards autocratic control and by this corruption. Uh, They feel that they have so much money or so much proximity to power that they can just float above it all or um, they feel like they're not quite safe enough so they need to play it safe. They need to not tell the truth. They need to protect power so that power will ultimately uh, protect them. And it's very careerist. It's very conformist. I don't think it's helping anybody. Um, And, you know, in terms of like podcasts and stuff, I I prefer these sort of like long form, unpredictable conversations. Like when I go on TV, I feel like they always expect me to deliver some soundbite, you know, some sort of preconceived answer that maybe people have heard before. And it's just not an inspiring process. And that actually matters to me. You know, I feel like after COVID, you kind of have to look at life and think, but what's really important, like what matters to you in terms of what you want to offer the world and what you want to learn in your life. And that kind of media is just not something I'm, I'm invested in or I think brings you know much good to, to our country. You touched on it earlier, and I've always appreciated that, that I'm guessing if, if we have to label people, you lean left more than you lean right is my guess. However, you definitely have been a stickler in holding anybody and everybody accountable. And I'm going to leave out some names, but but there are some that have really stood out. AOC and Hakeem Jeffries, uh, Elizabeth Warren, Ted Lieu, Swalwell, Jaya Powell. A lot of them, they say plain spoken, this is what's going on. I'm grabbing you guys. I'm trying to shake you into this reality. And then there's a whole bunch of others who are kind of doing what you were just talking about. Like it's old fashioned Republicans and Democrats and all we're arguing is about the the, the length of the tax cut or something. You know, like yeah. we're not in old fashioned times. We're in these super weird modern times where everything's spun out of control. So why aren't there more people yelling at us to say this has been going on? You need to wake up and just spit the truth out. I think it's it varies person to person. I think some people are deeply afraid. You know, we live in a political culture of threat and violence, and I think that that contributes to the silence of some people. Others are, um, you know, careerists. They're conformists. They want to climb that ladder. They want to ascend to power instead of using the power they have for the better good. But there's also a commonality in the people you named. I think. I think they're all under 50 years old or certainly under 60 years old. And I think that there's a generation gap. I think younger people realize like we have to live with the consequences of everything happening now, with the lack of action on climate change, with the uh, repeal of Roe versus Wade, um, you know, with incredible income inequality that, that you know, s- surpasses even the Gilded Age. We have to bring up our own children in this. And I think a lot of us are thinking about our kids. You know, like I have um, an 11 year old and a 14 year 
year-old, and I'm very worried about their future. And I know that that's also true of a lot of the representatives you just named. You know, they have younger um, children, and so we're looking at the future. Whereas I feel like you know Pelosi, Biden, etc., all these um, septuagenarians, octogenarians in particular, they're they're not. Although I often wonder, like, what are they thinking will happen to their grandchildren? Like, what kind of world were their grandchildren and great? grandchildren inherit and don't they care? You know, because no one will be protected from a lot of these things. You could have all the money in the world and climate change is still um, going to impact your life and certainly the life of, you know, your grandchildren, great grandchildren. So it's strange to me. Um, It's like an apathy toward uh, suffering and toward death. And we're kind of getting the preview version of it with the reaction to COVID. Uh, And it's, it's scary to me. You know, when I was listing the names of some of those that I said have been more forthright, Adam Schiff, I left out Mm -hmm. by mistake. He recently yelled it out like the DOJ needs to do. Here's the we gave it to you. Here it is. Do something. Yeah. So what else can these representatives do to force the hand other than yelling about it every day? Well, I I think they need to yell right at. Merrick Garland. They kind of do this thing where they tweet about it like the way you and I do, but they act like you and me, as in we're not elected representatives. We're just people who are observing and they act like they're observers instead of people who actually hold the reins of power. And I think they need to tell the American people, like, here is what we are doing to force the DOJ and force Merrick Garland to do their job and explain what they are refusing to do or what they think is going on. Like, we need more clarity. We don't need these little tweets and soundbites. We need a full explanation. We're owed that. We deserve that. Would you love it if you got to write an amazing apology for ever doubting him? If the counterpoint, some actually still believe this, is that they're working on this amazing airtight case and it's going to come and they're going to do the right thing. And you don't believe that for a second. I think even if they have a quote unquote airtight case, which first of all, I think they do because we all saw the airtight already, case. It's in plain sight. Yeah, as you it said, was yeah. on television. And the people who planned the crimes, they confess them all the time. Like Trump has now confessed to obstruction of justice twice on television. Uh, they planned January 6th to the point that on Gaslit Nation, we did a January 6th capital attack preview special because, you know, Michael Flynn and Lynn Wood were recruiting people to do it on the internet. And they were all like, yeah, we're totally going to go do that. Help us get a hotel. I mean, it's all right there. So I feel like this is a pretty easy case to make when the criminals keep confessing the crimes. The thing is, is like, then they actually have to hold them accountable. They have to indict people. They have to have trials. They have to force people who dodge subpoenas to show up. And they've been consistently unwilling to do that. And I don't know if it's out of fear of, you know, mafia type threats or out of complicity or what, but they haven't been willing um, to hold people's feet to the fire. The only time I kind of saw that initiative was in the immediate aftermath of January 6th, when I think it became very clear uh, to the American public in general and to political elites just how far the GOP and Trump and his group in particular would take it, that they don't care about rule of law, that they don't care about norms or protocols or obviously about right or wrong. They will do anything to seize power and, and that's it. There's, there's no limit for them 
And then they just let it go. And they've just, you know, let uh, the clock run out. And that is a great tactic of aspiring autocrats is to run out the clock and, you know, let time take its course. I mean, one thing that's been very um, sad to see, I think, is a lot of Americans feel like we don't deserve that anymore. They act like we should just be, you know, docile and, and, and sit back and quote unquote, trust the plan, which is the exact same thing that QAnon and MAGA and all the, the Trump people try to get their followers to do. The Democrats are, are, are encouraging that same sort of mindset, but I don't trust the plan. Like I need to see the plan. You know, I'm from Missouri. I'm from the show me state. I need to be shown these things. And especially yeah. after the last six years, I really need to be shown them. So I just think more transparency and more forthrightness would go a long way. Uh, Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia, who's not exactly been a force for the uh, cause of the most of the uh, Democrat Party, he said something. I think they were talking about voting rights. And he said, that won't happen. The government won't let that happen. Like, hmm. and they're like, what? How? Dude, we're talking about you guys not putting into place, you know, actions s such as the voting rights, you know, the new voting rights accord. And he just throws out the government will handle it. And then people are supposed to buy that as though, oh, sure, yeah, the government will take care of that. Yeah, that's been a really alarming thing to watch, I think, is the lack of emphasis on voting rights, uh, the refusal pr to protect voting rights. That and holding um, you know, the January 6th uh, plotters, not just the sort of random people showed up, but the plotters accountable, should have been two of the priorities right off the bat for the Biden administration. And instead, they've used Mansion and cinema as this excuse, like, oh, we can't possibly get it done. I mean, they should be doing everything humanly possible. They should be embracing you know, any kind of LBJ, like really, you know, slam it home for those two tactics. And what's strange to me is that this goes not just against democracy, not just against the preservation of our rights and freedoms, but against the Democrats' own self-interest. Like, how are people supposed to be able to vote if they don't have voting rights? How is the Democratic base supposed to show up and how is their vote supposed to count? So there's, you know, a lot of bad stuff in store. They don't seem to be taking it very seriously. And I'm more interested in the question of why than whether, because I'm, I'm, I'm quite sure they're not taking it seriously. And I just want to know why. I'm pretty sure Sarah Kinzer fans are really into this. Some <laughs> other folks jumping on board are like, why are they starting at 400 level? And I mean, but we're so deep and it's gone on so long, you'd have to really back it up. Uh, and in one of those places, I guess people could go back and read that first book. Which you did you self-publish to begin, and then it got picked up. Do I have that right? The view from flyover country. Yeah, I mean, I wrote those essays um, for Al Jazeera America. Uh, no, no, Al Jazeera America, Al Jazeera English between 2012 and 2014, and then I had an audience that was like, "I really want these in a book," um, and I I would pay for that, and I was like, "Okay, sure." So in in 2015, I self-published all those essays, which you know I had the copyright for, into a book, and the book was really really popular, especially after um, Trump won and people wanted to know why. And it got to the point that a lot of famous people were quoting it. Hillary Clinton it. Um, was quoting passages from it at, at some of her speeches. This is after she uh, had lost the election and so forth. And so the publishers came calling and they wanted to make a print version. And so I wrote a little extra stuff and, and then that got published. And so, yeah, there's stuff in there. There's stuff in hiding in plain sight. The backstory's out there. I know this all sounds probably wild to people who have never heard it before. But um, one of the reasons I talk with such intensity is that I do feel like we're running out of time. We have a narrow amount of time to, to get this information out there. So try to pack it in, you know. 
Yeah, just for those who don't know, it's still time to read it. I think I bought like 100 copies, I told you, and just distributed them like Johnny Appleseed of Sarah Kenzier Books. The View from Flyover Country. So, in short, tell me if I'm wrong, it basically set the stage as to why Trump could have happened. There were people who were gullible and wanted to believe his lies because they felt they'd been ignored. And there were these places that had long since been overlooked, just like the, they're in flyover country, right? Yeah. And so you weren't making excuses for them. You were just, here were the facts, here here were the relevant situations people were living in, and oh, that's why they could have fallen for a guy like him, a con man going out there and telling tales. Yeah, I mean, I wrote those essays before Trump was even running for president. So it's not like a series of essays about him or anything like that. It's a series of essays about why American institutions and social trust are collapsing, and particularly in places like I live. You know, I live in St. Louis, I live in Missouri, but I feel this everywhere. You know, when I would go to New York or DC, you know, and I would see gentrification and I would see people struggling to pay their bills and struggling to find jobs. Like, it's just a feeling of, of futurelessness, of lost opportunity. And it's really easy for demagogues to swoop in and take advantage of that. And it's easy for people to feel so alienated and abandoned um, that they don't vote at all or they check out of uh, politics entirely. And I think all of those factors contributed um, to that election, that and a lot of other uh, underhanded dealings. But that's another story. That's the story in Hiding in Plain Sight. So. Is part of the problem in America that there are people who, quote unquote, identify as Republicans, so they, they kind of want to believe their story. Lower taxes and smaller government. They're going to throw that one at them, right? And then the Democrats are for certain civil rights, right? That's the more leftist view of things and and give help to those who need help, a hand up, et cetera, right? I mean, I minimized it in the, in the, in the most minimalist way. But you know what I'm saying? So there are the so-called... Republican-leaning people are like, they just don't want to believe this bullshit on the other side. That can't be true. Otherwise, something would be happening about it. So I'm just going to stay over here, plug my nose, and keep voting Republican. Yeah, I mean, those two views of like what the parties stand for, that's what I was taught when I was a little kid. And I feel like they just haven't been that way in reality. That's like like what I learned from watching Family Ties or something. You know, I thought Republicans were like Alex P. Keaton. And, you know, I think that's the way they would have liked to be seen, but they're not. And I think the two parties did become more similar to some degree over time in the 90s. The Democrats certainly moved um, toward the right. But what I see now is something, you know, just profound alienation among the American public. You know, most people aren't in a party. Like, I'm not in a party. I vote Democratic because no, I live in Missouri. So, like, who am I going to vote for? Josh Hawley? Like, you know, that's obviously not going to happen. So I'll vote Democratic down the ticket. But I'm an independent, and I've never been in one. And that puts me in the majority of Americans who vote, you know, something like 44% of Americans are, are just not in either party and half of Americans just don't vote at all. So that leaves you with a really small number of people who identify as either Democrat or Republican. And I think it's because they're just fed up. They feel like these are a bunch of really wealthy elites who aren't working to represent the public good. And I think that that generally is true of Congress. I don't think that's really true of, of local officials who are often working you know, very hard for their communities and so forth. Um, and it's not a reason to check out of politics. Uh, you know, you still want to try to get the best person in there possible. You still should vote. But it's that that alienation underneath it that leads to so much. And that's why I wish there was just more um, transparency and accountability so people could kind of get to the root of how did we get to this place? Why don't uh, officials feel accountable or afraid of the public? Like, where did the leverage of the voter go? You know, those are the questions that I, I, ha I have for today. 
Well, I, I get mad at and blame the consumer in this regard. You have to be smart enough not to believe something that just sounds so ridiculous on your aunt's Facebook and then gets repeated, and you're going with that. Wait a minute. That sounds... Hold on. I mean, Even stuff on the left, and again, I don't belong to either party either, but also, wait a minute, that doesn't add up. Let me look who else wrote about that today, or let me research, you know, and people seemingly don't want to take the time to get to the truth of things. They'll just buy whatever, you know, echo chambers overuse, but it's kind of true, right? Like they'll yeah. buy whatever's being sold on the side they think they're supposed to belong to. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And to some extent, I don't blame people because most people don't have all these hours in the day to try to figure everything out. Like I think about this, how this is my literal job. Like this is what I do with my life. This is what I, you know, my career is. I'm still having trouble with some of these topics, getting the full story. So I could only imagine what ordinary people are going through. So I think there's just a sense of um, collective exhaustion. But I think another big, big change, um, you know, from just 20 years ago is algorithms and digital media and people being fed content that the algorithm has decided that they want to hear. It's almost always conservative stuff or um, you know weaponized conspiracy theories like the sort of Alex Jones things I was talking about before that get pushed towards people like even towards like my kids will just be watching YouTube videos about something really innocuous like my son likes to watch videos about how ants build ant colonies and then suddenly there's like a big ad for some sort of like QAnon you know brigade um, you know publication and maybe that's a result of actually now that I'm thinking about it of my own research within this whole home um, on those topics, but still I don't like him having that stuff show, pushed at him. You know, I, I feel like that's very different than when I was a kid and, you know, maybe I'd watch something on TV that my parents didn't like or whatever, but at least they knew what it was. I don't know what the hell is being shown to my kids or pushed on my kids or pushed on any person for that matter. We're all in our own silos and that makes it harder to have a discussion about a shared reality. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Selling a little or a lot. 
Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odysseypodcast, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash odysseypodcast now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash odysseypodcast. You scared the shit out of us again. Things are bad. To summarize our conversation so far, 30, 40 minutes, things are bad. Let's go back in time. What were you doing at like age nine, age 10? Give me give me an experience from your grade school years that would suggest you were going to turn out to be who you turned out to be. Oh, I was like ruining sleepover parties by talking about Iran-Contra. I mean, I, I was always sort of interested in this sort of stuff. I was a big reader, you know, and as a kid of the 80s, you know, there was no internet. I just read whatever was lying around, which meant I was reading a bunch of, you know, magazines and stuff that were aimed at adults and, you know, watching TV shows that were aimed at adults. And I did have that, you know, cynical, like, late Gen X, early millennial, very cliched kind of thing going on where, you know, I, of course I questioned authority. Of course I didn't want to be part of some sort of cult mentality. Of course I, you know, I, I was very wary of our rights and freedoms being taken away. And I've always kind of been like that. And I don't know, um, maybe that contributed to my lack of surprise in the present day. But uh, it's interesting for me, though, to go back and read those 80s journalists, because I feel like it was so much more hard hitting back then. You know, even if the mainstream people didn't appreciate them, there were so many opportunities for investigative reporters to at least try to get the truth out on uh, corrupt dealings in various administrations. Now they just don't try. Now the kind of model is like the Chuck Todd types. You know, that's what people want to be like. And I don't understand that. So I'm hoping, you know, the uh, old uh, investigator's style, you know, comes back into vogue, I guess. There are many indie journalists and there are many individual journalists within the system of mainstream media who are doing great work. So I, yes. I hate it when we make some criticism of mainstream media and, and they all get wiped out by it because individually there are some people doing amazing reporting, but they kind of get eaten up by what you've described as everybody just going along because we're all in this big system together and we all got to come out the other side profitable. Yeah, that's true. I think there are a lot of there are a lot of great um, writers and journalists and also a lot of people who just have expertise in a particular field. And because of Twitter, because of social media, they're able to write for a general audience. And that's just been a blessing. I mean, that's we, we are, if we choose to be uh, better informed, I think, than we ever have been because we do have um, access to all of those uh, specialists and stuff. 
It's just, it's a struggle. You know, it's like this constant process of, of trying to stay afloat financially, trying to not get, you know, threatened with violence, you know, and we're not people who can like afford bodyguards and, and you know, so on. And um, I think it's kind of gotten a little bit better for us perversely as our suspicions have been validated. Um, and things that I said five years ago are not at all thought of as, as mainstream or um, abnormal things to talk about. Certainly all my studies of authoritarianism are now mainstream topics of conversation, but that's bad. I mean, that's the thing. That's the terrible thing about being someone who studies what I study is when we see our worst fears and our suspicions vindicated and validated, it means that America is in a terrible position and we would much rather be wrong. We would much rather be completely off base and have everybody be safe and free and happy than have some sort of career based on prognosticating doom. Like it's a really, it's kind of a crappy career. I, I feel like I need to do it because it is what I I even have expertise in, but it's painful, you know, and uh, I think it's painful for everyone living under it too. Um, and, you know, but that's why we do it is to try to keep people informed. You brought it up about the threats and Twitter threats and, and maybe more real ones. What, what does your family think about what you do? How do you hold it together? Um, I mean, it's, it's been tough. Uh, you know, the severity of threats come and go. Um, you know, most of them, you know, I, I don't talk about it much with my parents anymore, you know, because I think it just, it, it scares them. Um, and I don't talk about it with my kids because now, you know, they're, they're old enough. And so it's like just my poor husband <laughs> who really has to uh, deal with it and hear me, um, you know, go on and on. And it's a weird thing because there's just such a gulf between my public life writing about this really dark, uh, horrific subject matter and my regular life, which is, you know, being a mom and hanging out with my kids and doing fun stuff in Missouri and all of that. Um, and so I, I, I separate it. I have to for my own sake. You know, I have to find the things that are good and positive um, in life and positive about America, in part to show my kids that, like, not just, you know, who are we fighting against or what are we fighting against, but what are we fighting for? You know, what do we value? What do we treasure? How has our history worked? How have people in the past, uh, you know, risen up to fight these dark forces, which have always been there. Um, you know, I want them to know that. I notice on your Twitter, I don't know if you do it every Sunday, but it sure seems like it. You will say, I'm declaring whether it's a full day break or half a day break, and you'll go and tour parts of Missouri and, and show pretty pictures. Like it's, that seems to be your escape. Oh yeah, yeah, I love being outside. I love hiking, I, I love traveling. But yeah, I mean, this is a beautiful state. Um, I don't wanna give away the big secret that Missouri and also Arkansas are just gorgeous uh, places to live if you love the outdoors, but um, I do. So we go out and do a lot of stuff like that. We're, you know, a real like outdoorsy kind of family. So it, it's just fun and it definitely clears my mind and I, I get off the internet and that's also a blessing is to be places where even if I wanted to, I couldn't get internet access. So that, that works out great for me. Yeah, as bad as I am at golf, those have been my happiest time. Working out, I have a ruined ankle. You know about that. You've helped my foundation for veterans. We give these braces to veterans, runfreely.org. And just that half hour when I'm running, when I'm, it's like, I'm, it's the happiest time all day. Oh, I feel yeah. the best all day. Same thing, golf. Only I text my wife once after nine, hey, how you doing or whatever. But other than that, you you check out. You've mentioned Missouri as sort of the trial grounds for the rest of what's going on in the country. In the same way you and Andre have mentioned Ukraine, the trial grounds for what Russia's trying to do worldwide. Why do you stay in Missouri? What do you love about it? 
what are you fighting for there? Yeah, I mean, Missouri historically has been that, you know, the Missouri Compromise was that. And, you know, I can go to cemeteries near my house that are half Union, half Confederate. Uh, This has always been a place where wars over American identity were fought and ideas of American identity were created. You know, Walt Disney was from Missouri. Chuck Berry was from Missouri. I mean, I could go on and on about seminal American figures who just invented the idea of like, what is America? What is American culture? What is American politics? I mean, the thing that happened with Missouri, we were once again a bellwether. You know, we used to be called the bellwether state because we would predict the winner of a presidential election. What happened was a radical right Republican majority took over our state legislature starting around 2008. And the will of the people in Missouri has been ignored. Uh, We're much more progressive than we seem. There are ballot initiatives where people voted solidly to do things like raise the minimum wage, get rid of dark money, protect labor unions. And the state legislature was like, forget it. We don't care. We don't care what you think. And they overruled it. And that happened before that became like a national phenomenon. So we were ahead of the game. Um, I mean, one of the reasons I stayed in Missouri was for most of my life, I didn't have any money. And this is a really great place to live if you're a young parent, uh, you know, with with little kids and you can't afford to do anything. There's a lot of free stuff in Missouri, you know, free parks, uh, free museums, free zoo. Uh, And, you know, it wasn't so much a choice as just kind of like, okay, this is my situation and uh, I'm going to take advantage of it. I'm going to, you know, get whatever I can out of it. Now it is a choice because I feel like it's part of me. You know, it's my children's hometown. It's, it's what they know. It's where their family lives, their friends live, their community lives. I want to fight for Missouri. I don't want to just sit here and let it get taken over. Um, I don't want to leave people behind. I don't want to see people suffering um, in my city. So I'll stay and I'll fight. Um, you know, there's this horrible long tradition of St. Louis folks uh, who fought against uh, reactionaries and, and militias and so forth, having to flee across the river, across the Mississippi to Illinois. And I hope I don't have to follow um, in that tradition. I know that that's what they want. You know, they want us to cede these states. They want us to cede this territory and to give up our homes. Um, and I think ultimately, to some extent, some of these folks want partition or civil war or, or things like that. And I just refuse. You know, I'm, I'm as they say, I'm standing my ground. I'm staying in my house and I like it here outside of the uh, politics, which I absolutely hate, but I like everything else. So, you know, too bad for them. <laughs> They're stuck with me. I'll give you another sports metaphor. I remember writing this some time ago that the Republicans are like the, the team, the organization that would bring in seven illegal JC transfers and try to win a title at any cost. Democrats are trying to play by the rules and show, you know, hey, we lived up to the our righteousness and we hope we win, right? One wants to win and does anything, the other one kind of hopes. Because you look across some of these national issues, you were starting to reference them from abortion with equal rights, equal rights for women, civil rights for all colors, um, you know, legalization of marijuana. I mean, what an easy one, right? How many people would be for that? And 70% in a lot of these cases, yet somehow that that doesn't win. The, the, the other guys keep on winning and, and getting these restrictions. Yeah, it's frustrating because the Democrats have so much to run on. Because like you said, you know, most of the country actually is in agreement on a lot of major issues, um, you know, on 
corruption, on gun control, on abortion, you know, and all these things that are thought of as very contentious, it's not a 50-50 split. There's a clear majority um, in what people want. And the Democrats, you know, they ran on a platform in 2020 that was very popular, that promised, you know, to do all of these things, fulfill all these, um, you know, policy goals that were pretty progressive. And they just didn't do it. And I keep thinking, if you want to win, like, all you have to do is, like, pass the actual platform you ran on. Like, that and hatred of the Republicans is why so many people turned out to vote for you during a pandemic. So this shouldn't be as hard as it seems. I mean, there are other structural factors in play. There's gerrymandering, there's voter suppression, and so forth. But they should also be aggressive on fighting those. And what worries me is that most of them, aside from those that you mentioned in the beginning of the show, they don't even put up much of a rhetorical fight. They often cede ground uh, to the Republicans rhetorically like they kind of think "Ooh, what will the scary Fox News people say about me and I'm like why do this why care at all this is a dishonorable party it's like what you just described with your sports metaphor that I didn't completely understand but what I did understand is that these folks are cheating and lying and not playing honorably um, and that is how the Republican Party behaves so why bother uh, trying to placate that it's almost like the, there's too often the notion that we have to let everybody know we're really fair. We're we're playing in, by the rules as opposed to playing hardball, yeah. you know, and going after it and standing up and supporting people who are out there in the streets for whatever reason. I don't want to end on World War Three. I'll definitely have a couple backup questions for you here, but we didn't even talk about what's happening in Ukraine. I know that's so dear to your partner Andrea Chalupa. Her film Mr. Jones, which I thought was amazing, uh, goes back to the starvation of Ukraine and how the New York Times reporter was sort of writing on behalf of, of the Russians at the time, the Soviet Union at the time. Mm-hmm. And, and it just shows how long this has been going on that people will sort of cover for horrible things because they're staying in the system. That's what I'm supposed to report. And then we reveal later, you know, what Stalin did to Ukraine. Do you think the U.S. should have stepped on the pedal immediately and just said, hey, we're going to face them at some point. Let's throw up some jets or let's have a no-fly zone or like been more aggressive as opposed to Let's just arm them and hope they do okay. I mean, they should have been more aggressive back in 2014 when Putin first invaded Ukraine and took Crimea. I mean, and then, of course, he went on to, you know, hack the Russians went on to hack multiple U.S., um, you know, government institutions, including the DOD, the State Department, the White House, the DNC, the RNC. You know, this went on and on and on. And they kept cyber attacking us like they've been an aggressor to us and an aggressor to Ukraine and an aggressor to many countries around the world and a global menace. And they should have been treated as such. And instead, they kept trying to placate them, too. They kept thinking, oh, we can negotiate with them. You know, Putin is a global terrorist, and he's backed by a mafia syndicate, and you can't negotiate with people like that. And as for the military stuff, you know, I'm not an expert about what equipment people need or or anything like that. And of course, we want to avoid a situation with, you know, nuclear weapons as much as we can. You know, it's, it's terrifying. But I think, you know, this conflict is not going to end. If Putin does manage to take, say, even eastern Ukraine, he will continue to keep pushing into western Ukraine. If he takes all of Ukraine, he's then going to try to take Moldova. He'll try to take northern Kazakhstan. You know, he will not stop. So something has to be done to stop him. And yeah, I think, you know, the Ukrainians have shown incredible resolve and Zelensky has shown great leadership. And I think they know best what they need. And I think what they ask for is what they should get. So that's my take on that as someone who, you know, as I said, with a caveat, I'm not an expert on, you know, military equipment or battle strategies or or things like that. 
It almost seems like Putin believes he's in World War III. It's the pregame, and I'm not making light of it at all, but to put it in that parlance, and we don't know we're in it. We're just... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Putin has thought we're in World War III basically since the Soviet Union collapsed. They've been playing a very long game over there, and it's not about communism versus capitalism, and it's barely even about Russia versus America. It's about this transnational criminal syndicate versus people who just want to live their lives, You know, whether they're, they're Americans or Ukrainians or what have you, and instead we're being subjected to forces of incredible abuse um, and domination. And I think that the West was in denial about this. They were in denial about Putin's ability to pull this off. And the UK learned the hard way with Brexit, and we learned the hard way, um, you know, with both the uh, cyber attacks and with, you know, Trump, who had just put forth uh, the platform of what uh, the Russian government wanted to do, get rid of sanctions, etc. Uh, you know, he wanted to withdraw from NATO, all those sorts of things. Um, I think it came as a shock. There is too much arrogance. There's too much American exceptionalism, like, oh, you're, we're the last superpower. It can't happen here. We're always going to be a democracy. You can't take that stuff for granted. You know, if the last um, six, seven years have shown us anything, they, they should have shown us that. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. You hear that? Your dog knows. Spring is coming sooner than you think. Dog walks, dog parks, playing fetch, all the stuff your dog loves to do with you. But the warmer weather also means that fleas and ticks are coming back. Fleas and ticks are in the grass, in the woods, and even on their dog friends. Fleas are an itchy nuisance, can easily get into your home, furniture, and beds, which can be terrible. Ticks are even worse. They're hard to spot, but can carry disease and get your dog really sick. PetMeds has your furry friend protected with the best products to prevent flea and ticks all year long. PetMeds pharmacists connect directly with your vet to save you time and deliver the best products for your pet. PetMeds offers low prices on all flea and tick meds, including Nexgard, Simperica, and more. And PetMeds AutoShip helps you save even more with additional discounts on regular shipments of PetMeds, dog food, and other high-quality supplies. So get ready for all the spring fun now. Visit PetMeds.com and use promo code PODCAST to save 40% on your first auto ship order. That's PetMeds.com and promo code PODCAST. I remember when the Apprentice House got elected, right around that time, you put out the notion, I want everybody to write down things that are dear to you that you'll never compromise on, you know, what matters in your life. I'm not saying it perfectly as you did. What did you write then? And what have we lost since then? Have you compromised anything? I don't think I've compromised at all. I'm the only thing in Missouri that doesn't compromise. Um, you know, what I wrote was was that essay, which is still online. It's called We're Headed Into Dark Times. And it's also in my book, Hiding in Plain Sight. Um, and, you know, and I've been writing constantly. You know, at that time I was writing like for a public audience for the Globe and Mail. But I was also, you know, writing down just a lot of my... I don't know, memories of things I was doing with my kids, you know, of just ordinary things happening in my life, because I wanted to treasure those memories. You know, one thing I feared was just losing my own memory of my family, which is the most important thing to me, in the midst of all this horror. And when my kids were older, I wanted to be able to tell them, we did this thing, we did that thing. So I, I, in particular, I started taking them to uh, national parks all over the country, because I wanted them to see this country 
before it collapsed if it was going to collapse. I wanted them to know that it was real. I don't want them to be brainwashed later into thinking that America was something it isn't. You know, I don't know what they'll remember from that. They were both pretty young. You know, my son was uh, about five and, and my daughter was nine. Um, but I'm glad we did that. And I'm glad we have uh, photos and records of all those things. You know, a lot of what we're going through now is a battle over historical memory, whether it's the historical memory of a place like Ukraine or our own memory um, of America, America's, uh, you know, tragedies of the past or what we've been going through for the last few years. And so that's why I think it's important to have that clarity, to have kind of a time stamped uh, record of, of what we've felt and what we've expected and what we think we deserve. Um, I think it's good for people to write that down because it, it's so easy to get battered down in this climate. And this is something to kind of remind yourself that this does matter, that justice matters in its own right. Freedom matters in its own right. Integrity matters um, in its own right. So if you define your own life, if you live by your own values, um, then you know you do have that moral freedom. So even if people didn't take that assignment when you asked them to do it way back when, it, it's still a good exercise today. Oh, yeah. Um, there's something that you and Andre do most shows. I don't know if you do it every show. I'm a Patreon subscriber, <laughs> by the way. Um, and you, you try to end, you know, end on hope. And you give people kind of like the instruct. here's what you can do. It starts locally. I know it's cliche, but it's really true because they're going after these election boards and school boards. And if people on the other side don't get involved no matter what the vote count allegedly is right they because they like to forecast what they're going to do a lot mm -hmm. of projection on that side yeah i mean if you're looking for i don't know a note of optimism or hope i mean i always emphasize one. more resilience and fortitude so that would just be my advice is you know don't give in don't give up don't let them tell you that you're something you're not don't let them define you know what your rights are you know you stick with what you you know are constitutionally obligated to have and don't let people um you know box you into a corner in that way i see people surrendering in advance and that worries me never ever surrender in advance it's so much better to put up a fight and to lose than to just not fight at all so that's my advice is keep fighting no matter how tough it gets tell me if i'm wrong here some years back i remember using i would say this joking not joking because i really believe i was and still am I got my resist out. I got my resist and I meant it. Like I support people like you. I distribute books from people like you. I give to candidates I care about. I show up at protest, like doing the things that just a regular citizen can do. Remarks on Twitter, support this, be against that, right? Advocating for things, right? Yeah. And I, it just seems like there's a group of people that I'm never going to persuade, not that I'm anybody. And so I've sort of told people like who are more like-minded, like I am, don't go for that side, find that group in the middle or find that guy or woman at work that usually doesn't get involved, have a talk with them, give them some information, like find that middle, that tiny percentage that does, you said 50% don't even vote. There must be 3% or 4% that might vote yeah. that you can influence, right? I mean, how do we go about this, I guess is the question. Yeah, I mean, I always say, you know, for folks who wanna get involved, know your own strengths you know like you don't have to do the same thing that everybody else is doing like if you're an outgoing person and you like to 
you know, socialize, then go canvas or go make phone calls or go organize with others in your community. If you're more introverted, then, you know, write. I mean, that, that's how I am. I don't like doing this kind of canvassing stuff because, you know, I'm, I'm shyer in, in that respect. Um, you know, play to your own strengths and what you feel passionate about. There are so many different crises going on, and that's incredibly unfortunate. But if you're, you know, if the thing you care most about, for example, is climate change, focus on climate change. If it's uh, reproductive rights, focus on reproductive rights. Like, follow your heart. There are so many things at stake that, you know, you can lead a life that's fulfilling. You can contribute to a cause that fulfills you as a person and help others um, at the same time. So hopefully that's, you know, enough of an inspiration uh, to get involved. But like I said, you know, think about the people who are going to suffer most in these situations. Try to help them out. Local activism matters so much. Our media is very much structured to emphasize uh, national things, but, you know, you can make a tremendous difference on a local level and it's you know not necessarily glamorous or anything like that but i think that's good i think it's good to get back in touch with your community um especially after covid you know where we've all been alienated and, and hurting i think um you know it's it's a way to kind of try to heal on a local level you remember this from two years ago a little over two years now the beginning of the trump virus I bought you tickets, you and your husband, to go to Pearl Jam in St. Louis. I that do That was just remember. my gift. I appreciated <laughs> everything you do and your effort. Um, and unfortunately, that whole show had to be postponed. But now they're coming back. Mm -hmm. So I know it's going to be around your book tour. I hope you make it happen. Oh, I hope you so. Get to go. I, I <laughs> I'm determined to go. I'm ready to tell like the uh, the publisher I got some priorities going on. So uh. you you can you could do the book event outside Pearl Jam. I'm sure that you'd have a willing you know, listening audience. They right did there. that. I think Eddie Vedder did that song about John Roberts. I think it was a bonus track on the Into the Wild soundtrack. It's very apt. It goes with my book. So yeah, I will align with Pearl Jam if need be. <laughs> well, my hope is they open or at some point dedicate Patriot to you, the old Jackson Brown oh. thing that they cover. I appreciate you being here on this and i appreciate what you do every day and we'll see you down the way i appreciate you too thank you so much for having me on hey maine is a production of me kenny maine and odyssey our senior producer is paul aspen our executive producer is jody avergan and our executive producer for odyssey is lena glazer social media support by joey caponi if you like our show please rate us leave a review and don't forget to subscribe 